This is Weekly Signals Interviews, broadcast every Tuesday morning from 8 to 9 on KUCI, 88.9 FM, Irvine, California. I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Kaspar. In his new book, Nemesis, The Last Days of the American Republic, Chalmers Johnson confronts the overreaching of the U.S. empire and the threat it poses to the republic. Nemesis is the third volume of an inadvertent trilogy, which includes Blowback, where Johnson linked the CIA's clandestine activities abroad to disaster at home, and The Sorrows of Empire, where he explored the ways a growing American militarism have jeopardized our stability. Johnson is the president of the Japan Policy Research Institute. Chalmers Johnson, welcome to Weekly Signals. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, it's good to have you with us. How are you today? Okay. Everything fine? And you're down in La Jolla, which right down from uh, UCI here. Well, I'm actually in Cardiff, uh-huh. not in La Jolla, but yes, in northern San Diego County. Very good. Now, you wrote Blowback, then you wrote Sorrows of Empire. Was there a point in time you reached where you realized you had another book, and, and what triggered that? Oh, it was certainly the invasion of Iraq. Uh-huh. I uh, finished uh, Sorrows of Empire in the lead-up to the invasion. It was a study of our base world, the, that is the 737 military bases that we have in other people's countries. Uh, it was, uh, I, didn't, I wasn't sure I had anything further to say, however, until the, uh, uh, the invasion of Iraq turned out to be such an unbelievable fiasco, uh, discrediting our military, um, terribly damaging our public finances, uh, in war crimes that uh, it's very problematic when, if ever, our reputation will return. Uh, and uh, that's what I then decided to uh, begin to look at the issue of the connection between imperialism and domestic democracy. Mm-hmm. The, uh, the, the great instability, as history shows to us, of any nation being both a domestic democracy and a foreign empire. One is... Uh, obviously a Republican form of government, the other is a form of tyranny. The two interact with each other uh, through uh, the military requirements of empire and have a tendency to destroy one or the other. Can we, can we have both? Is it possible for, for, for the, uh, the U.S. to have both a foreign empire and a domestic democracy? History tells us no, that mm. you can be one or you can be the other, but you cannot be both. The that's the classic example, and important because the United States was, to some very considerable extent, modeled after its structure of government was, of course, the Roman Republic, mm-hmm. which, uh, again, was the first really great example in political democracy. Uh, it rather thoughtlessly acquired an empire around the Mediterranean, discovered in the process that that required huge standing armies, um, huge military expenditures, which began to totally unbalanced the Roman Republic, uh, and uh, it uh, succumbed to military dictatorship uh, after the death of Julius Caesar. Did, do you think that the, the Roman people, the Roman leadership, did they make a conscious decision at some point in, the, in, the, in their history where, <clears throat> where they said, we're forsaking our democratic um, institutions for the sake of an empire? Probably not in that simple manner, mm-hmm. uh, but in another... I believe they uh, did uh, deceive themselves about their invincibility, about the glories of Rome, 
um, Mare Nostrum and all the rest of it. Uh, that is our sea, whereas the their name for the Mediterranean. Uh, the belief that they could do anything, something a little bit like the United States, yeah. mm-hmm. immediately following the collapse of the Soviet Union, when we seemed to go crazy over the idea that we were the lone superpower, the new Rome, uh, beyond good and evil, we could do anything we wanted to. Well, the, the American century, right? Yes, exactly. And that this, uh, uh, that therefore they didn't really... Uh, contemplate what the maintenance of empire would mean. What it did mean was military dictatorship. Uh, democracy did not re- return uh, for over a thousand years. We're speaking with Chalmers Johnson. The book is Nemesis, The Last Days of the American Republic. Um, going, I want to just step back a little bit, the, trace the American empire. Um, did you, was it a full-blown empire after World War II, or did it evolve beyond that? Oh, I think it's always been an evolving thing. That is, again, my understanding of the American empire is that the unit is the military base rather than the colony. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have had colonies at the turn of the 20th century. We had a fairly extensive set of colonies. None of them uh, were brought any credit to our nation, particularly our savage repression of the uh, Filipinos, mm-hmm. uh, and allegedly also our attempt to bring Christianity to them. They had been... Christian nation for well over three centuries. Uh, it's just uh, in those days we didn't seem to recognize Spanish Catholicism as a form of Christianity. Uh, but the it is above all the wars beginning with World War II and our uh, establishment of outposts around the world during the war, which we never left. I mean, we are still have 37 American military bases on the small island of Okinawa. Uh, following the Battle of Okinawa in 1945. We still have huge uh, deployments throughout Japan, Italy, uh, Germany, Britain, uh, that uh, the the core areas of our empire. We have then expanded them systematically and regularly uh, so that the the current number, according to the base structure report, which is an annual Pentagon inventory, is uh, 737 American military bases in well over 130 countries. And one should not confuse this. These are real military bases. They're sometimes apologists for the Pentagon try to say that, uh, oh, well, you're just counting uh, Marine guards and overseas embassies. Mm-hmm. I guarantee you we don't have anywhere near uh, 730 uh, um, American embassies abroad. There aren't that many countries. Right. I, I've heard you describe up to 1,000 uh, the 730 the that they acknowledge. And then that the, because yeah. this is an official report. Right. It does not count. Uh, espionage bases. It right. does not count those that are too embarrassing for us to talk about. Right. Some have long been left out of the count through cute devices, such as the bases in England are all disguised as Royal Air Force bases, even though there are no Englishmen on them. Uh, things of this sort, mm-hmm. uh, so that the uh, the exact number is not known, but it right. probably runs around a thousand. Right now, uh, there. Let's just quickly touch on the. Uh, Huge military bases that have been built in Iraq yeah. and also in is it Kazakhstan? Where's where's the other one that the the huge one and in Kyrgyzstan? Kyrgyzstan, okay, right. We have well, all, the yeah. I mean, in the case of Iraq, I believe there is today widespread opinion. There's no hard evidence. This has been one of the most delicate subjects for the administration, but very hard opinion that the ultimate purpose of the invasion of Iraq was to add it to the American military empire by building bases there. That we had our policy in the Middle East 
had traditionally rested on two pillars. One was our position in Iran, which, of course, was defeated in the overthrow against the Shah in 1979, the Shah we had placed in power using the CIA. Uh, and then the other was Saudi Arabia, which goes back to our position, our partnership in the Arabian American Oil Company after Standard Oil of California discovered oil in, uh, in Saudi Arabia. Uh, our position there had become increasingly untenable, largely through our own mistakes, uh, because of our placing troops in Saudi Arabia after the first Gulf War, which uh, insulted numerous Saudi nationalists that uh, a regime com committed to the defense of the two most sacred sites in Islam, uh, Mecca and Medina, was itself being defended by foreign infidels. Uh, so that uh, the Saudis began slowly to restrict our use of Prince Sultan Air, Air Base outside Riyadh uh, to uh, control how it was used and things of this sort. By the time of the invasion of Iraq, we had moved our main uh, CENCOM headquarters uh, from Saudi Arabia to Qatar. Mm -hmm. uh, the, uh, in that sense, Iraq was, in a sense, of saying, why did we not have a, a strategy for withdrawal? Well, we never intended to leave. Mm -hmm. uh, it was um, the area had become available, the southern Eurasia, for uh, imperialist expansion with the collapse of the Soviet Union. In 1991, uh, we uh, invaded it without, obviously, any real plans for uh, the future governance of the people of Iraq. Uh, we now have uh, five absolutely massive bases. Uh, that's including the world's largest American embassy, which is a fortress being built in downtown uh, Baghdad. Uh, but four bases spread around the country, dual runways uh, in the Balad Anaconda Base. They're, they're two together. North of Baghdad is uh, what has nine internal bus routes. It's so big. Uh, I mean, it's uh, uh, and concrete has just been poured daily by uh, Kellogg Brown and Root by KBR uh, uh, Corporation. Um, these uh, no one will ever say that these are permanent bases. They like to use euphemisms like enduring bases. Every once in a while. Air Force officers attached to CENTCOM headquarters in uh, Qatar will say some inadvertent remark to the press like, oh, well, we expect to be here for at least a couple of decades, yeah. uh, and things like that. But uh, the Congress goes out of its way to say this is not on our agenda, and we have never said in so many words that we uh, are, are not intending to remain in Iraq indefinitely. Uh, and that certainly was the original plan, that we would stay there permanently. This would be our new uh, basic hub in the Middle East, uh, having lost both Iran and Saudi Arabia. Mm -hmm. And, the, well, we've, we've sort of have the picture of the infrastructure of the, the American empire here. Yes. Let's start to, let, I would like to talk a little bit about the effects that it's having domestically. I always like to make this distinction when we talk about American interest as opposed to what the American people want. And yes. it seems like the, this empire is about American interest as opposed to what you and I want, health care and, and education and all the rest of it. Is that, is well, that fair to no say? I about that. It, yeah. uh, that is, all of the executives of our current uh, executive branch are former petroleum company executives. Right. They certainly know about uh, uh, Iraq's oil wealth and intend to exploit it. They also intend to use it as a lever over other countries of the world, including China. Uh, 
by uh, controlling their access to, uh, to energy. Uh, these are certainly, definitely not necessarily American interests. Moreover, they try and disguise what they're doing with this remarkable propaganda about how we are spreading democracy, uh, which they uh, emphasize continuously. There's something awfully contradictory about using the U.S. Army to spread democracy. That is, it, imperialism is a form of tyranny. It does not uh, countenance or recognize in any way, shape, or form the consent of the governed, as we see in Iraq every day. Uh, we were not invited there by the Iraqis, and they have made it clear they'd be delighted to have us gone from there. Uh, it's, uh, and and so, long, so long as we do that, we are sowing the seeds of anti-imperialist revolt, uh, which we see spreading almost cancer-like throughout uh, the Islamic world today. We're speaking with Chalmers Johnson. The book is Nemesis, Last Days of the American Republic. And uh, before we get too far into domestic yes. uh, policies, I'd like to know, uh, do you think we'll spread democracy to Iran? <laughs> <laughs> well, yes. Uh, the, uh, obviously, we don't know. Uh, the, there's something completely logical about Iran's policies. Uh, in my opinion, it would be logical for us to uh, simply settle down and get used to having a nuclear weapons armed uh, Iran. Iran is surrounded by nuclear powers, by the Soviet Union to the north, to, by the United States in the Persian Gulf, by Israel to the west, and then by Pakistan and India, both of which are nuclear powers. It's uh, isolated and, uh, and under threat. The threat has been made public by the President of the United States in his talk about uh, axis of evil, which seem to be nations he intends to, uh, uh, to cause them to change in the ways he likes. He calls it regime change, and it's done at, the, uh, at the, the point of a bayonet. Under these circumstances, Iran knows, as North Korea soon uh, did know also, that uh, the only way to stop this American imperialist juggernaut is to have nuclear weapons and threaten them with retaliation. It goes back to standard deterrence theory that we've had for, uh, for many years. I think uh, the way to deal with Iraq, Iran is to uh, uh, prepare basic deterrence. Uh, it's, uh, there's no easier thing on Earth to detect than where a missile is launched from. The Iranians have a long reputation for rationality. They're very much aware that should they fire a nuclear-armed missile at Tel Aviv, they would disappear the following day. Uh, but uh, the opposite is also true. I mean, what the Iranians are saying, it's much like uh, Churchill in, uh, you know, in, in 1940 at the time of the Blitz, uh, saying, you know, if you've got to go, take one with you. The Iranians are saying, we are menaced by some uh, very fearsome people who uh, we probably should believe them, given their behavior in Iraq. Therefore, we have no choice but to try and, uh, and deter them. Uh, under these circumstances, it seems to me totally insane that we should contemplate a nuclear strike against Iran, one that almost surely won't succeed. They've been thinking about it for a long time and have built massive defenses. All of their nuclear facilities are widely dispersed. Uh, it would create a hornet's nest of what is a really quite large country. This is not a small place that you can uh, easily push around. It would produce disgust throughout 
the rest of the world. We would look like a new Nazi regime. Um, and therefore, I'm in some ways not surprised to see that uh, uh, fairly large numbers of uh, sitting high-ranking military officers in our uh, in our military establishment are threatening to resign on the day the, the attacks are launched. Well, this brings up a question that I, I want to ask you, and it's akin to what happens if, in fact, enough, a significant number of uh, U.S. military generals say, no, we're not going to do it. And it, we're, not, we're not talking about a military coup here, but we're talking about resistance on the part of the military leadership the U.S. government, enforces a constitutional crisis. Do you, is there a possibility of that happening? Well, certainly there is a possibility, and I think that, in a sense, we are talking about a military coup, that once uh, they throw down the gauntlet in that matter and say, uh, power is now in our hands, we no longer recognize the authority of the president to uh, issue these orders. We don't think they are the proper orders. They've not been sanctioned by the American people through their elected representatives things of this sort, then the constitutional system has crumbled. And uh, you'll have to put that together again, if you possibly can, with a new constitutional convention. It, 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 do, you, is there, do you have an inkling that that's something that could happen? Or is it just... Are you looking no, for I mean my subtitle. Uh, the yeah. last days of the American Republic yeah. is not just hype to, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, just to sell books. Uh, the Empires go these days, and they go very rapidly, yeah. uh, just as did our erstwhile uh, former fellow uh, superpower, uh, the Soviet Union, between 1989 and 1991. We've been playing with fire, where uh, uh, we have a military that seems to be out of control, increasingly dependent upon the military-industrial complex for job creation in America, yeah. uh, massive overseas debts. The, the record trade deficits of all time, the loss of three million uh, manufacturing jobs over the last five years, um, the uh, and, and one thing after another, combined with a disrespect for the Constitution that is now simply palpable in Washington, with the president going around saying something about as anti-constitutional as one could imagine. I am the decider. Yeah. Uh, that assuredly, what Madison and company wrote into our Constitution was that the decider was a combination of people uh, reconciling their differences in order to produce a consensus view. Right. The president has not even attempted that and is now denying that he should. Uh, this is a constitutional crisis, and it gets worse daily in the sense that the Constitution does provide uh, effective procedures for getting rid of an unsatisfactory political leader, and it's called impeachment. The public elects the opposition party to power, and the impeachment would have to come from Congress, and immediately the Democratic Party says impeachment is off the table. Well, if impeachment is off the table, democracy may well be off the table, too. Yeah. Well, when the U.S. military is the pillar of, of, oppos of loyal opposition yeah. in the country, you know you have hit, a, uh, you've hit the bottom, or you're beginning I, to hit bottom anyway. I think so, and then you also have to recognize that our military today is a professional military. It has been since 1973. Yeah. A service in the armed forces is not an obligation to citizenship. It is a career choice made voluntarily uh, by uh, men and women around the country, often for uh, reasons of uh, that they are blocked in their social mobility through dead ends in our society. That's why uh, 
50% of the women in the armed forces come from national minorities, things mm. of this sort. Uh, the uh, officer corps likes this arrangement because it's easier for them to deal with volunteers than with uh, people who have been conscripted. Uh, but the point is the military is growing further and further apart from a profile of the society in general. It is developing its own individual and corporate interests, and uh, yeah. this poses huge problems for democracy. I mean, I don't like the draft, but I, uh, and, uh, I, I was in the Navy in the Korean War um, basically to avoid the draft. I chose to go in the Navy rather than be drafted into the Army. Uh, the, uh, uh, but there is something about the fact that when you're in the armed forces under these circumstances, you know why you're there. You're there because your country has ordered you to do so. You become very concerned about whether the strategy makes sense, whether the officers know what they're doing. Um, you uh, end up with things like the Vietnam War, in which uh, I'm, very, I'm a great admirer of Christian Appy's book, uh, uh, Working Class War, where we discovered uh, that the draft was so inequitably applied that uh, so long as you can stay in the university, your chances of, uh, of being sent to Vietnam were uh, close to uh, zilch. Yeah. I mean, the number of Yale graduates killed in Vietnam is one. Oh, my God. Yes, that's yes. the number, and uh, we know about him uh, in some detail. He was a flyer. Yeah. Uh, but it, um, well, and this you know, one... that is to say, and then in our wisdom, rather than make the draft equitable, we decided in 1973 to abolish it. Mm-hmm. Well, what makes this more even, uh, more to your point, and, and that is the American public is almost completely disconnected from the effects, the ramifications of this war. This is one of the most striking things about Well, this. I agree with you. This yeah. is one of the things that we're talking about right now, yeah. is that the war still remains abstract. Yeah. Uh, it's a subject of discussion, of uh, uh, political games, yeah. but it's not really being seen as... Uh, something that lies at the very heart of our self-government. Well, we have to see something like a financial bankruptcy before people pay attention to this? Well, that's where I believe we're tending. I do not really expect a military coup, simply because I, I think the officer corps is itself already too satisfied with uh, their comforts, their pay, their uh, revolving door into the military-industrial complex uh, to do anything as risky as... Uh, a direct takeover of power. But nonetheless, we acknowledge um, General Tommy Franks, the commandant of the assault on Baghdad, has already said in print that in case of another 9-11 type attack on the United States, he felt the uh, military had no choice but to take over. Um, wow. So it, it's not as though nobody's ever, uh, ever thought of it. Uh, I believe that the only real course left to us, and that's what we're in some ways trying to do this morning, is a mobilization of inattentive voters to what they're about to lose and what it will mean to them when they do lose it if they don't uh, begin to play the citizen role, the role of oversight and an active engagement in politics. But as a prediction for what I think is likely to happen, and it is just that, an attempted speculation on the future, I certainly do not foresee the future, is that we will drift along maintaining a facade of constitutional government until we are indeed overtaken by bankruptcy. Yeah. The, uh, this would not mean the literal end of the United States any more than it did for Germany in 1923 or China in 1948 or Argentina just a few years ago in 2001 and two. 
but it would certainly mean a uh, drastic lowering of our level of living, the uh, almost total collapse of our influence in the rest of the world, severe domestic economic crisis, uh, and uh, we would emerge as a much poorer uh, country, uh, which, and the shock would be so great, you could at least contemplate domestic revolution. I want to remind our listeners, we're speaking with Chalmers Johnson. The book is Nemesis, The Last Days of the American Republic. We have time for one more question, and I think it kind of goes to the heart of the psychology. Uh, you, at one point I, I read uh, where you were quoting Hannah Arendt and yes. The Banality of Evil, and uh, this is sort of the psychology of where we're at right now. And you've taken this um, this saying, Banality of Evil, and you have your, your, your own take on it. Yes. Why don't you get into that just a little bit here? Well, I was a student of Arendt. Uh, she used the phrase in the last line of her book, Eichmann in Jerusalem, after the trial of Adolf Eichmann, uh, the, uh, but she never made exactly clear what she meant by it. Uh, later in life, in various essays that have been published posthumously, she makes it clear that she meant by it the inability to think. Uh, people lost in bureaucratic chores doing their job, as was Eichmann, a sort of... Uh, uh, railroad uh, cargo handler mm-hmm. uh, who uh, was chiefly concerned with the efficiency with which he moved prisoners about to the death camps in uh, in Europe, uh, and that he never really gave it a second thought what he was doing. This sounds to me very much like the troops at Abu Ghraib who were photographing each other, torturing uh, Iraqi prisoners. Uh, and then it crossed my mind that there was Sergeant Darby, the guy who sent his pictures to the uh, Army uh, 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 Intelligence Authorities, I thought, well, here's a man who had not ceased to think. He mm-hmm. said that he uh, uh, did regard the whole thing as contrary to everything that he stood for, and uh, come what may, he was going to expose it. Mm-hmm. Uh, we then we convict a fair number of enlisted men. All the officers go free, including the high command. Uh, in every investigation we've had of these very serious offenses against uh, our, uh, our armed forces and uh, our charges against our armed forces and, and the evidence piled up, that in every investigation we've had, the investigators have been instructed not to point their investigations toward the president or the vice president so that the CIA is blamed for faulty intelligence uh, about mm-hmm. weapons of mass destruction, things of this sort. The whole thing adds up to a scandal of such huge proportions that it seems um, another example of the banality of evil uh, to sort of see the congressional debate today. Yes. Well, we want to thank you very much for being here on Weekly Signals. The book is uh, Nemesis, The Last Days of the American Republic. Well, I appreciate your inviting me on. It's very kind of you. Chalmers Johnson, thank you for being here. Thank you very much. To learn more about Weekly Signals interviews, including upcoming guests, or to download the podcast, visit our website at weeklysignals.com. And be sure to visit nathancallahan.com for daily readings and feature articles. Until next week, I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Caspar. And this is Weekly Signals.